This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Alex Panos and his colleagues at TSG Consumer Partners, a San Francisco-based investment fund, believe that consumers will always be interested in products that enhance their lives, even if it means paying more than they have in the past. That philosophy has brought impressive results for TSG, primarily in the beauty, food, and beverage areas. Panos, who joined the 23-year-old firm in 1998, spoke with Knowledge at Wharton about the company's strategy, why it favors family-owned businesses, where to find opportunities in a recessionary economy, and how to build up a brand, among other topics. Our guest today is Alex Panos, Managing Director of TSG Consumer Partners. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to see you, McCall. Thank you for your time. Now, TSG was set up in 1987 as an investment fund focusing on the food, beverage, and beauty industries. Could you help us understand what business opportunity you saw and what your strategy was? Sure, sure. So the firm was actually founded by two of my partners, Chuck Esterman and Gary Shansby, in 1987. I joined in 1998. And uh, so I'll, I'll describe what they saw in the market, which then, and I think applies today, um, there seemed to be a gap in the market. There were private equity funds using a lot of leverage uh, and doing larger deals, fewer of them, and venture capital funds were doing many deals, but all equity, and neither had a particular um, uh, industry focus. Um, the VC guys were business builders, and, and the LBO guys were driving value primarily through leverage. My partner saw an opportunity to build a business focused on business building um, and uh, driving value through growth. Seemed to be the opportunity, so it's really hybrid. So we do fewer investments, and um, and we use very little debt, if any, in our deals. Why did you pick that, or why did your partners pick that industry? I think consumer products seems to be a lot of innovation. Uh, I think they saw an opportunity to find products where there was uh, there would be uh, strong loyalty and premium products that were still affordable. So even in a down economy, still people still might include them in their lives. Uh, and uh, something we look for in all of our businesses to this day is um, an installed base. So uh, a product that works, that people enjoy, perhaps somehow enhances their life, and is, uh, we use the term, uh, affordable premium upgrade. So, you know, vitamin water, one of our investments is an example of that something that provides a little bit more than maybe what you were drinking before and doesn't cost that much more. And you're finding that consumers are sticking with these products even in this down market? People are always looking for value, especially in a, in a market like this. Um, but small luxuries, we find, do better even in a down market. Uh, how did the financial crisis affect your approach to investment and the kind of brands you were looking for? Sure. We have some investments in um premium beauty, and those can be very high-priced products, um, beauty products, you know, 100 to $200 plus, uh, and those are definitely more challenged in this market. Consumers are looking value. Where even those products have done well, though, is in a channel like QVC or Home Shopping Network, where 
QVC, I think, stands for quality, value, convenience. So they still want these items, but they want to know that they're getting a good deal. So what we've seen is channel shopping, right, but still for high-quality products. Well, down markets also create new opportunities. Have you encountered any of those as a result of the recession, and how have you taken advantage of those opportunities? Wow, great question. Yeah, it's been actually an extraordinary year and a half for us. We've been as busy as we have ever been. So um, we've done four transactions in the last 12 months. We found a special opportunity where the banks um, are out of the market, and we found an opportunity to provide equity capital. And again, remember our strategy, we prefer healthy balance sheets. We don't use debt to drive growth. So we've been able to find strong businesses that maybe found themselves a little over leveraged and we come in and have uh, provided a healthier balance sheet for them. Consumers may still adhere or gravitate to these small luxuries as you as you term them. The companies that you invest in, the industry you invest in, they are known for kind of fickleness among consumers. Uh, and you know it's an industry where fashions change so quickly and tastes change so quickly. How do you keep on top of that? How do your companies keep on top of that? Yeah, that's also a great question. We, um, well, let me back up. We invest in three areas primarily, food, beverage, beauty, and then I'll say other branded consumer products, always consumable. So pet, car care are other categories we've seen. Um, I'll start with food and beverage. We have have favored products that are nutrition-oriented, better-for-you products, and in many cases functional. And so... Even when people are stressed, even when the economy is challenged, I think people want to enhance their lives and would like to try to eat better. So it's been a unique opportunity to provide products that replace what people have. A a, a great example, one of my favorite examples, is a company called Smart Balance. So margarine was an otherwise unhealthy, you know, category with no innovation for years and years, but a staple of people's diets. And... uh, Smart Balance launched a margarine with no trans fats, and that was clinically proven to improve your cholesterol ratio. It sold at a premium, so two forty nine for an, a um, one pound tub of Smart Balance versus you know maybe a dollar for um, one pound of of sheds or or another unhealthy margarine, and uh, consumers traded up for it. Chance to enhance their lives for a little bit of extra money. I've noticed that you've invested in products, brands. I'll show my ignorance here because I haven't heard of these, but I'm fascinated by their names. Muscle Milk. Sure. Mona, is it Mona Mona V? V? I have heard of Vitamin Water, but I'd like to know really what that is. Sure. Muscle Milk is a protein shake, and uh, it was found primarily in in gyms um, and sold as a powder uh, that you would take home and turn into a shake. Um, strong management team. We saw an opportunity to help them as they diversified their channel and essentially delivered a ready-to-drink protein shake, um, but available in what we call the up-and-down-the-street channel, you know, in delis and cafes. So beyond the gym. Beyond the gyms, uh, and ultimately in grocery, which is where they're going today. And it's been hugely successful. It's a ready-to-drink shake that um, um, is a good alternative to a bar. So does, it's does a, it a meal replacement. Does it appeal mainly to men, given the name, or is it crossover? Uh, um, surprisingly, it's done really well with women. 
Um, and uh, the reason is that it's, uh, it tastes really good uh, and has high protein and there isn't much else out there. Monavi is a acai drink company sold through the multi-level channel. So we have hundreds of thousands of distributors. It's a nice source of income for them, you know, much like an Amway. Mm-hmm. A nice source of income for them, even in an economy like this. And you take, it's sold in a wine bottle, of all things, so a very premium product and sourced from Brazil. And uh, one or two shots a day delivers a nice dose of SIE, which is a very high antioxidant. Uh, it's, it's really an extraordinary product that people say uh, enhances their lives and improves their health. And I, I take it the same with vitamin water? <laughs> yeah, I, um, vitamin water was a knockout success for us. When it was launched, it was a nice alternative to um, high fructose corn syrup laden sodas. Um, so it provided more than water, taste, and some functionality, and uh, less than sodas, and uh, filled a nice place in the market. Um, they're actually, actually their top selling SKU, at least at the time we sold the business, was um, a, a, a SKU called Triple X, which is a acai SKU. I'm sure you get lots of different investment opportunities. Could you uh, take one such investment, like say Smart Balance, and, and talk us through how you identified that as an opportunity, how you worked with it and built it up as a brand? Sure. We're always looking at new categories and seeing what's growing and what has innovation. And we actually, it was as simple as, in this case, looking at the Nielsen data for the margarine category and seeing uh, a company with extraordinary growth. Uh, and through a relationship, we um, were able to reach the, the CEO of Smart Balance, who was um, 79 at the time. And... Uh, struck up a relationship, brought him some ideas around how he could expand to other categories with the Smart Balance brand. And as happens with many of my investments, over a period of three years, we came to know each other very well and ultimately found uh, a transaction that worked for all. And uh, at the time we invested, Smart Balance was primarily one skew, but very profitable and expanding. Three years later, um, it was the company had um, several SKUs in the margin category and then had um, gone from a 4% share to a 25% share in margarine and had launched five other categories with between 5 and 10% shares each. So for my business, the food business, the holy grail is a brand that can ultimately be a billion-dollar brand by being in many categories. So in the case of Smart Balance, I went from margarine to of all things, mayonnaise, popcorn, cream cheese. Uh, the company has launched milk now um, and uh, more categories to come. Interesting. Uh, what is it that you look for in the management of these companies that you invest in? And, and equally important, what is a, a red flag for you? Sure. First, we try to back existing teams. We're really looking for founders who are um, passionate about their business, uh, I actually favor family businesses, and many of the companies that, that I target are father-son teams or husband-wife teams or mother-daughter teams, and that has the culture that we favor where um, the business is core to who they are um, and someone who's truly living their brand. Um, so that means a lot to us. 
someone else might say that they actually avoid family-run businesses um, for reasons that we all know. They they can be very incestuous. They can be very. Uh, they say they want outsiders to come in, but they really aren't willing to give up any power or control. Uh, they have succession problems, you know, intra-family problems, etc. So I take it you've, in addition to being able to to choose the right families, you've sort of figured out a strategy for making that work. Yeah, we, we, we have somehow navigated that. I mean, I, um, you know, not every family business is for us, of course, but when it works, it works very well. What I look for are businesses that have been built brick by brick, you know, over many years, um, or at least are the culmination of many years of uh, one or two businesses and that experience. In the case of Smart Balance, the founder had previously owned the Weight Watchers brand, which he sold to Heinz, um, and then started Smart Balance. So even Smart Balance was 30 years of being an entrepreneur and another previous 40 years, pardon me, 30, eh, 30 plus years of being a CPG executive. And he worked closely with his son to develop this. And uh, they were quite a team, one of the best I've seen. Your, your investment activity has given you uh, probably a ringside view of branding. What are some of the most important lessons about branding you've learned over the years? Right, right. Most of our businesses have, um, have established some sort of badge value uh, where um, consumers are buying the product not just for what it does, but specifically because the company and the brand um, somehow seem to share values that the consumer has. And so sometimes what you buy says as much about um, who you are. So an example might be a recent investment, Pop Chips. Pop Chips is um, a potato chip that is not baked, it's not fried, it's popped like popcorn. Uh, and it's only 100 calories a bag versus three or 400 calories for a typical chip, and it tastes great. That's what the product does. People buy it because they feel that the company is iconoclastic. You know, the company has broken the mold. It's not the Frito-Lay. And uh, if you're that type of person, Pop Chips is a product for you. In addition to being able to turn over the bag and see that the nutritionals are great. So um, really your favorite companies are able to send that message uh, to consumers. It requires a certain amount of authenticity. Do you feel that the trends these days towards not just better nutrition, but also green products, uh, et cetera, are these fads in themselves, or do you think these suggest longstanding changes in what consumer values are? I mean, are they interested really in a healthier lifestyle and a healthier environment uh, in fairness and fair trade practices, or is it just going to go by the wayside when, you know, say there's another recession? How substantive are these values? I, I think these are very important trends and, and will be long-term trends. Uh, and again, it goes back to um, a consumer will have a high bar, you know, almost a double bottom line of what they're looking for from the products they buy, um, both uh, in ingredients um, and uh, where their products are made and who's making them. Uh, what's the culture of the business? Is the um, um, is the company uh, a good corporate citizen? Is it a positive member of the community? Um, you know, a great example, not an investment of ours, is Newman's Own, um, and hugely successful. We're all aware of 
of the Toyota recalls going on. Um, this is every co every company's nightmare that there's a, a product defect or whatever. Um, has that ever happened to you? And how would you deal with that to one of your companies? Right, right, right. I mean, I I, I think it's almost uh, relates to a Hippocratic oath. We definitely wouldn't want any of our companies to do any harm, and that's the the probably the number one tenet. So. Certainly, when we make any investment, we do a lot of work to make sure that safety standards are at the highest level. We haven't had such an experience, but you never know. Um, so uh, I'll always take the high road as it relates to, to consumers and safety. Mm -hmm. uh, another major trend, uh, along with some of the others you described earlier, uh, is globalization. Uh, and as companies become much more global, uh, you often find outsourcing happening where suppliers uh, take care of a lot of the manufacturing and operations, uh, although they are all still united under a common brand, uh, how do you manage the risk that that introduces into to a brand? Because now you have uh, outsourced operators uh, responsible for producing things that will be sold under your, your brand. Yeah, we have... We have focused um, very much on products that are made here in the U.S. for a number of reasons. One, we favor U.S. jobs and our companies. Uh, and then two, we can keep greater control of, um, of quality. So several of our companies have manufacturing and some of the industries like beauty. There's a lot of capacity, so we leverage co-packers. But we've been highly focused on U.S. manufacturing, both for job, you know, job growth and, uh, and safety. Well, a lot of business students uh, dream about having a job like yours, <laughs> being able to be a successful partner in investment funds such, such as, as TSG. Um, I'm just wondering, what keeps you up at night when you think about your job? What pitfalls are there that you feel could await you? Sure. I do prim two, two primary things um, in um, uh, in our business, and one is we're always looking for the next the next great thing, and developing relationships with um, entrepreneurs and and great companies. Um, so we want to make sure we're part of and um, uh, top tier investments. That means meeting companies early. Um, I should also step back and say that I view our mission as helping entrepreneurs build great brands. That doesn't necessarily mean we're invested in them. In other words, we spent a lot of time with companies that we're not invested in, uh, and it's it's led to great karma, learn experience for us, and great pleasure in seeing companies be successful. So we enjoy doing that. And once we make the investment, um, I want to do everything possible to help them be even more successful. So how can we help our companies in uh, every aspect of their business and bring them great resources? Uh, of course, um, given the prices we pay, that's our starting point. So we have, we're highly motivated, um, but we're looking for a case studies. We're looking to have case studies of helping an entrepreneur and a management team uh, build a phenomenal business, in particular businesses that somehow enhance people's lives. Uh, and uh, so far, it's worked out reasonably well. How much do you travel? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I'll go wherever there's an opportunity. Uh, and so uh, I, uh, I'm on the road a lot. I had been in San Francisco for 10 years, and then, but I was spending uh, 100-plus days in New York. So that led to me... Uh, opening a New York office for us. 
uh, and then ultimately I, I moved to New York. But uh, yes, I'm on the road a lot. Are there any underserved markets where you would like to invest but you haven't so far? In? Our investment activity has been focused on, as we discussed, food, beverage, beauty. We've done some pet, uh, and we've done some household uh, products. I believe that there are opportunities in apparel, accessories, and other categories um, if we can avoid the fashion risk. So we'll keep looking if we find that that brand that is a you know long-term brand, not not a fad. We're really looking for, I should say, we're looking for, as a friend of mine described it, phenomenons. We're looking for things that have both consumer passion and uh, and consumer respect. And those phenomenons are, you know, I see them come come about every few years. Just to get back to uh, the question about branding, I mean, if you look at Procter & Gamble, they've been having a kind of a tough time during this recession. Initially, they didn't lower their prices and they lost some consumers to um to, to more value-oriented products. Now I think they're trying to meet consumers halfway and maybe lowering their prices a little but not all the way and trying to entice consumers with, say, more product in, a, in, a, in the same size package. But, it, but that's a very you know, hard dance for, for them to, to do, um, given the fact that, that you know, we have 10% plus unemployment, probably as high as 20% if you want to count it in different ways. Uh, so, you know, their brand is really under the gun. When you look at a company like Procter & Gamble, what, what do you think is going on in their head? And, and what, what have you learned from a company like that that you can apply to the companies that you've invested in? Yeah. Look, I admire Procter & Gamble and I admire the other large companies, but the challenge is um, uh, that they move very slowly. Uh, and that creates extraordinary opportunity for us and that um, the innovation may or may not come from inside. In fact, uh, TSG has made a number of investments in um, snacks and beverages. You probably couldn't pick two categories that have that are dominated by such large large players. In the case of snacks, Fruit Olay, which is owned by Pepsi, and in the case of beverages, Pepsi and Coke. Um, but we repeatedly go back into those categories and have had reasonable success. Um, uh, in the case of snacks, Terra Chips. Pop Chips, Garden of Eden, uh, and others to come. In the case of beverages, vitamin water, Mona V, Muscle Milk, um, and uh, some others on their way. So, so you are finding these niche, sort of niche products, niche markets that you grow. And ho- the hope, I assume, is to, that they don't stay niche. They become more mainstream. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, um, I, I look at this often, and I think this is the biggest challenge. How do you have... Um, a product that um, may appeal to influencers, early adopters, early on, uh, and keep their loyalty even when the product becomes mainstream. Um, Apple is probably the greatest example. And uh, vitamin water seems, we're not an owner today, but they seem to have done it uh, as well. You know, how did they do it? I think that consumers view it as a product that, that also shares their values. Um, again, it's a little bit iconoclastic. Well, one last question. You, you are now investing your fifth fund with $900 million in capital. Uh, where would you like to see TSG go in the future? Right. Well, 
first I should say we have the, the, the best team we've ever had. I have an extraordinary group of partners. Uh, we certainly like to stick to our knitting uh, and we favor the categories we're in. We're always evaluating new categories. We may see top tier investments in new categories. We're uh, writing larger checks than we've ever written. Um, so we have a chance to buy even bigger businesses. Uh, we still want to support entrepreneurs uh, with businesses of all sizes. So occasionally we'll break the mold and do something smaller than we would otherwise do because we see a, a brand that can really um, change the game, so to speak. We continue to have consistent returns. We continue to build great case studies of working with entrepreneurs. Invest in products that enhance people's lives. It's really the mission. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.